if an athlete is wanting to race every four weeks for for 12 months it, it does make that macro plan quite hard and it makes it makes it hard for us to hit a peak so if I'm talking an Ironman athlete I'd really like to see perhaps two Ironmans in the year that's triathlon show 192 What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Lachlan Kieran, who is an Australian coach and professional triathlete. If you did pay attention to the title of this episode, you'll note that uh, Lachie, as he's called, is not just a coach, but he's actually now officially a coach with us here at Scientific triathlon. Before we get into the interview with uh, Lachlan to hear who he is and his background, his coaching philosophy or methodology, big thanks to our sponsors. First we have Precision Hydration and just last week I interviewed Andy Blow, the founder of Precision Hydration. Be sure to go back to episode 191 and check that out. That was a Q&A on hydration and that's what Precision Hydration do. They are experts in hydration and they help athletes in many different ways with products but also with advice through their blogs and their social media channels etc so uh, check that out and uh, remember that we have uh, two promo codes one is a limited time uh, until the end of august and that is the death triathlon show two zero to get 20 percent off your entire order on precisionhydration.com the other one is that triathlon show again all one word all caps but uh, just that triathlon show no two zero and those will be in the episode description and show notes, of course. That uh, that first one is the same that we've had for a long time. You can get your first box or tube of electrolyte product for free. But the great thing about that two zero code is that if you have already used that first code, you can you can use that two zero code and stock up on on product and and perhaps buy in bulk to save a lot of money. And that is highly recommended because it's a great electrolyte product. I like it. So there you go. Check it out on precisionhydration.com. And big thanks to Roka that you can find on roka.com. They're the world leaders in wetsuits, trisuits, and apparel and high-performance eyewear. Their products are used by some of the best triathletes in the world, like Katie Zafiris and uh, Mario Mola, Flora Duffy, and uh, Javier Gomez. And uh, they regularly win the swim skin count at Kona. Actually, there's been one single official swim skin count that i'm aware of and they won that but they always do their an unofficial swim skin count and uh, have been winning that for the past several years as well so it's really best in class quality on their products if you're looking for performance uh, you don't need to look any further than roca you can get 20 percent off your entire order with the promo code tts all caps all right, let's get into the interview with uh, new scientific triathlon coach, Lachlan Kirin. Welcome to That Triathlon Show, Lucky. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you. And uh, as uh, the listeners will have heard in the intro, you are our newest uh, scientific triathlon coach. So, so welcome on board the team as well. And we'll talk a little bit more about that towards the end of the interview. But uh, for now, let's just get into your 
background and and who you are so so can you tell me how how did you get into triathlon in the first place yeah so growing up in australia i played a lot of australian rules football which i suppose involves quite a bit of running uh probably anywhere from 10 to 20 k's a game once you get into the the older kind of age groups um so played a lot of that i uh my grandpa was a professional cyclist and he was one of my biggest idols growing up and so he always took us out on the bike for fun and, and grew up. I learned how to swim, uh, as most Australian kids do. Uh, I never swam with a squad, but played a bit of water polo, did a bit of rowing, um, and really came to found that, find sorry, that uh, with the training that I was doing for, for Australian rules football, that the running was a huge part of it and it was something that I loved. And I guess naturally I fell into doing a bit more running and doing athletics at school and and with my swimming and my riding kind of already being there, I, I suppose at about 14 or 15, I did my first proper triathlon. And from there, I just, I fell in love with the sport like so many other people do and was lucky to join a local tri club. Um, and my coach there was fantastic. He really guided me through those younger years and made some great friends. And, and it's, uh, as they say, the rest is history. And what is the the rest of the history then? For most people, probably don't know, but uh, but you are a professional triathlete now. How how did that come about? When when did you become professional? And what has your professional career to date looked like? Yeah, so I suppose here in Australia we have a very good uh, national under nineteen or ITU junior race series, and and the state that I'm in, Victoria, we have the Triathlon Victoria Development Program. Uh, that that's probably more focused at the draft legal stuff. Um, but I was lucky to be a part of that when I kind of was 16, 17. Uh, and I was probably a little bit late to the scene, I suppose, compared to some of the other athletes who, who grew up maybe doing triathlon when they were a bit younger. But whilst I didn't do a lot of that racing, it certainly provided some insight into the professionalism around the sport and allowed me access to some great people. So Coming out of that junior scene in 2012, I finished school and, and that year I, I started physiotherapy and after my first semester, I was lucky enough to, to head over to Boulder and just do some training there with Peter Robertson, who uh, he, he won the 2006 ITU World Champs, I believe. Maybe I'm wrong there, but I'm, I'm fairly sure. And uh, while, while I was riding there, Peter kind of – put me up for my pro license when I asked him about it. And he kind of was of the mindset that for me, if I was going to do long course, my, my best bet would certainly be to be racing professionally, given that my swim was at a level that I would make a pack. And so I did one age group race uh, at Hawaii 70.3, which whoever's done that will know it's a, it's a very, very tough course, but I loved it and I came third there but had a massive lead off the bike and just crumbled in the heat. It was certainly a big learning lesson on long course and, and the fact that you really have to respect the distance. But I kind of got to September and lined up at Sunshine Coast 70.3 in 2013 as a fresh-faced 18-year-old on the pro start line and I was lucky that day to make the chase bunch and be amongst the race at, at least to some extent and that you know, I only went four hours 10 that day, which these days doesn't seem that fantastic. But I remember at the time it was, I was over the moon to just have been part of the race. And I suppose since then I've done, well, over 50 professional half Ironmans. And 
uh, I think now five or six full Ironmans and obviously a bunch of other races in between. So I've had plenty of opportunity to race against some of the best guys and, and all around the world. And, um, yeah, I'm extremely grateful for that opportunity. Yeah, so, so two follow-ups on that. How, how long has your professional career lasted to date? And uh, what are some of the highlights uh, racing-wise? Yeah, so I suppose it's uh, been it, – this is coming on my sixth year now. Um, I haven't actually raced this year yet just due to a bit of a bit of an injury, but certainly looking to be back bigger and stronger in the second half of this year. Um, in terms of the highlights for me, I suppose uh, my first professional podium at Challenge Shepparton was um, a really great moment for me. I, I That was my second ever pro race was in Shepparton, and I've been there every year since. And I've had the same homestay every year. Uh, Belinda and Steve Ayton have looked after me. And every year I go back there and they give me a key to the house and let me do my thing. And it just felt really special for me to have my first professional podium there. Um, apart from that, I suppose I've been really lucky to, to lead quite a few races, uh, just due to the nature of, I suppose the the bike at this point is my strongest discipline. And, um, it, I, it's been really nice to be at the front of the race, uh, quite often. And I've had a few bike course records, which has been fantastic and, um, very lucky to have done that. But I suppose the next step for me now is to ensure that I can get off the position at the front of the race and really close and I think that the level of racing now means that you basically have to run 330 per k pace so there's no secrets about what needs to be done and, and the level that I need to be at and uh, that's certainly my goal for the future that's exciting and uh, yeah you have time on your side for sure and already uh, a lot of racing experience so so fingers crossed that uh, that you will keep closing the gap to to the very very top Let's talk about uh, what I think a lot of listeners will be really, really interested in, which is uh, the training that you do. Like, what sort of training does a professional long course triathlete do? And uh, obviously, you being a coach as well, it's even more interesting, perhaps, than some of the pros that might just get their training from somebody else or, or might just be winging it if there are such pros these days. But uh, can you give us an overview of your training? Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose my week looks like uh, a lot of my swimming is done with a swim squad. Uh, I have a swim squad here in Melbourne that swims at 5.30 in the morning or 4.45 in the afternoon, which, you know, gives me a lot of opportunity. That's every weekday. So certainly plenty of opportunity to swim with them. And I'm a big believer that getting in with a squad can be extremely helpful just in terms of that motivation side of things and, and really pushing yourself. Um, in saying that, though, I do enjoy getting in for a swim by myself, you know, every now and then and um, certainly something that I hold in the back pocket. But uh, the swimming is probably around 20 to 25 Ks a week on a, on a standard week, although I must say with this little injury, there's certainly been a few 50K weeks in there. And uh, whilst they're challenging, they've certainly been something that I think will help my swimming in the long term. Uh, on the bike, uh Interestingly enough, I'd say now that probably anywhere from 80 to 90% of my riding is actually inside on the smart trainer. Uh, just due to the nature of where I live here in Melbourne, um, sometimes it's not as safe as I would like it to be out on the road. And with traffic lights, etc., it can be really hard to nail specificity. So I tend to be on the trainer a lot during the week and then 
get out for a nice long ride on the weekends along the coast. Uh, but that's probably looking around kind of that 10 to 15 hours a week on the bike, probably closer to 15 most weeks. Uh, and then on a big week, that might push up to 20. And then running-wise, I mean, this year has been very light on the run front just due to a bit of an ankle problem. But for the most part, I, I've found the sweet spot for me is probably around that 60 to 70 kilometer a week mark. And and how many hours would that be of running? Um, well, we're probably looking at about, say, average 13 kilometers an hour. So maybe anywhere from kind of five to six hours. Yeah. All right, and uh, and if we go into the details of the the training structure, uh, do you have any sort of uh, periodiz- season periodization where where you do one kind type of session or training uh, in some parts of the season and then move into something else? So can you can you describe what that looks like? Yeah, I've kind of uh, for myself personally as an athlete found that stressing you know, a number of different energy systems through the week has worked very well for me, especially in my cycling. So in terms of the cycling, if I'm in kind of a a build phase, each week we'll probably have some strength endurance or low cadence work, some kind of sub threshold around 90% of threshold work, and then a VO2 session. And then that's really padded out by volume at kind of sub 70% of threshold. Um, And that's something that I like to maintain throughout the year. Uh, And then as we get more specific, say for a full Ironman, we'll probably just pad out some of those longer rides on a Saturday, kind of out anywhere from six to seven hours. And then during the week, not a lot really changes. I suppose I might build up the amount of uh, volume I'm doing in the strength session, but the VO2 session still kind of stays at around 90 minutes. Um, and the threshold session, the, the one that I'm really loving at the moment is is just eight by eight minutes at 90% with two minutes recovery. It's a bit of a mental grind to do on the trainer, but it's one that I've really fallen in love with. Um, in terms of running, I, I like to just keep a good foundation of low intensity work throughout the year. And then as we move towards a specific race, especially in Ironman, that long run starts to bring in some really kind of race pace intensity. So into the last uh, Ironman Bustleton, that might have included something like 3 by one k early on around 70.3 effort and then a good 40-minute block at Ironman pace before another 3 by one k at the end. And that does make it quite a big session. So you have to be very conscious about how many of those you can do. Um, and it's not something that I'd really like to do year round. So throughout the rest of the year, that long run might only be kind of anywhere from 90 to an hour 45 and uh, just at nice low intensity. Uh, the swimming for me throughout the year just, stays, just the, just stays thing pretty with Running, what are the other sessions that you might do in a week or other uh, in, uh, intervals absolutely. or quality so, sessions? Yeah, um, I suppose when I was a bit younger, we we would do a track session every week um, with the local tri club. But since then, and since racing a lot of longer course uh, racing, I suppose that that's probably something more like two k efforts is something that I've really come to like. So that might look something like four by two k at seventy point three effort. 
but in saying that, it's something that I build up to. So I might not start the first week with 4 by 2 k at 70.3 effort. It might be only two. And then we're just slowly building up to four and then maybe even out to five um, coming into a race. So that might be an eight-week block where I'm building up to that. Uh, then I might have something like an SE run, which I, I live on the beach here in Melbourne, so it's very easy for me to walk out the door and stick stick to the flats. So it takes a bit of effort, but try and get out to the hills and uh, and a few trails with a varied surface. And that's something that I had a sacral stress fracture in 2016. So I'm a big believer now in a variety of different surfaces and terrains. Um, I, I fell into a trap certainly of running on flat concrete a lot. And that's something that's changed a lot in my training. So year round, I'm constantly trying to look for a variety of surfaces and uh, also a variety of hills and different terrains. So if I can get trails or soft surface, that's something that I'm always after. Um, and apart from that, basically the, the rest of my running is is very much uh, kind of sub-aerobic threshold, as you might call it, if, if for me about 150 heart rate. But I'm really trying to run more down towards 130, 135 on those. And uh, what would your pace be in those easy runs? Um, look, at, at the moment, coming off a break, that might be – you know, up around 4.45 pace to, to hold that heart rate. But as I get fitter, that, that'll probably come down closer to a, a 4.20 to 4.30 as that kind of standard aerobic pace, which I suppose may sound a bit faster than what you hear from, especially the ITU guys. I, I know that a lot of those guys do that their low-intensity runs um, quite slow comparative to how fast they're running in the race, that's for sure. But um, I've just found that, that running at that pace is where I find a really good natural rhythm. My heart rate tends to be very steady and, and I find that that's the pace that I really in, just enjoy running at as well, to be honest. So um, as we get closer to the race as well, uh, some of those runs will be structured so that they're done off the bike. Um, you know, there's obviously debate out there as to – how important that running is off the bike but it's something that I like to do as someone that's had quite a lot of uh, GI issues through my career I find it a really good way to test different nutrition strategies and, and that's really important for me mm. and uh, moving on to the swim then uh yeah so the swim look it's I, I kind of have left the swim in the hands of um, the squad coach he, he has a pretty good plan kind of knowing when we have races He'll, he'll often work it around us. Um, in saying that, though, I, I have found just as my N equals one that using a lot more pool boy paddles into it and Ironman has helped me um, to just get through that 3.8K swim as easy as possible. That's interesting. That's that's really interesting. I'm, I'm currently experimenting with uh, really using the, the paddles as little as possible which is something new because i have been using them a lot in the in the past but uh and there are some some reasons for that like some people i talked with that that suggested that but uh yeah the, it's definitely again uh, a case of there's uh, not just one way to skin a cat so uh, really interesting to hear that yeah and look i guess the paddles uh, i mean i i believe they have their place and for instance now i'm, I'm coming off this break for a month which i've never really done before but the paddles are a kind of a great way to, I suppose, cheat some feel for the water. 
uh, especially coming back. But in saying that, you obviously don't want them to become such a crutch that you are un- unable to swim without them. Yeah. Uh, what about uh, so? But if we go into what that uh, a typical swimming week in the squad might look like, what what are the sessions that you might be doing? We actually just uh, a week and a half ago on the Q and A, we talked a little bit about the traditional squad swim training programs. Uh, but uh, what what does your squad do in a typical week? Yeah, I suppose my squad we do a lot of long reps, so anywhere from three hundreds, four hundreds, and five hundreds. Uh, on say a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then with a Tuesday, Thursday, I'm often in with some of the younger swimmers. So that might look like probably a lot more um, IM than some people might do, yeah, typically for triathlon. But I suppose when you're swimming, you know, five days a week during the week, it, it is good to have some variety. And I've found that butterfly is something that really helps me. Uh, in saying that, though, with my breaststroke, I can't say that I do a breaststroke kick. I'm doing a butterfly kick with my breaststroke. Uh, basically, the reason for that is just since my sacral stress fracture, I kind of was forced to do that and I've never changed back. But uh, um, I think we probably do a lot more IM than other squads. And in, as well as that, I suppose we're constantly going through phases. So even recently, we were doing a lot of backstroke, which may sound you know, kind of different and out there, but I found it quite entertaining and and, uh, certainly as a proportion of, say, a 5 or 6K session, it might only be a kilometre of backstroke, um, but that is still quite a lot. But you're still going to get, you know, your 4 to 5Ks of of freestyle, so you're still getting quite a lot of volume on a daily basis. What what extra benefit do you think that the IM and the the different strokes is uh, giving you? Uh, well, for number one, I think it's a mental stimulus. Um, it, it breaks up the session a little bit for me. Um, I think the IM uh, the the butterfly is a great strength builder, and I also think if we relate it back to say cycling, it, it would be like the difference between riding on your triathlon bike and your road bike. You're still going to have that crossover benefit, but it's um, just activating some different, you know, neuromuscular pathways and activating some different muscle groups. And I think that 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 is quite an important thing to do when you're doing quite a bit of volume. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so, and I am, by the way, for the listeners, it's an individual medley and, and SE you mentioned earlier with the run is strength endurance, just so we, we get those uh, abbreviations uh, out there as well for people that may not be familiar. Uh, what about strength, yes, strength training? Uh, do, do you do that? Um, I suppose for me, I've found the best thing in terms of strength training has actually been Pilates. Uh, it's something that I did a lot of and it's something that I really only started perhaps midway through last year, but I've found it extremely beneficial for me in terms of being comfortable on the bike, feeling like my hips are square, feeling like I can hit, get my hips underneath me and having that uh, perception of, of where my hips are in, in relation to the rest of my body. So I found that really beneficial. Um, I, I have a gym downstairs, luckily, at the apartment where I'm where I live and uh it it is easy for me to get down there but I suppose when I do get down there it's probably more your typical core and mobility kind of stuff that I'm I'm doing um 
I, I certainly believe in that there is a place for for weights, but uh, for me that that probably is now in my season as I'm coming back off a break and, and I will implement some, some more weight work, but it will probably be developing into, say, fairly high weight, low rep kind of stuff, um, just simple things like squat, weighted squats, um, you know, deadlifts, which I am very cautious of because uh, I'm, I want to make sure that they're getting done with really, really good form, um, especially having had some, some back issues in the past. Um, and then just some simple exercises like push-ups. I think chin-ups are, are great too. But, look, there's certainly room for me to grow in, in, in terms of the strength work that I'm doing. And how, how often do you do the, the Pilates and how long are the sessions? How, how much time, essentially, do you, do you put into that? Yeah, so they're an hour a session and I would like to be in there at least twice a week. Um, obviously, it can be tough scheduling it in around the swim, bike and run. And at some point you do have to make a decision as, as to what is more important, um, especially, you know, for, for the working athlete, I suppose, and, and age groupers and working pros, you do have to start making those decisions as to whether your time is better spent doing that or if there's still, you know, room to grow in the swim, bike and run and that's where your time is better spent. But for me, I've found that Yeah, if I can get in there twice a week for an hour, it's it's a good result. Yeah, that, that's an important point to make. I think that uh, uh, age groupers shouldn't just copy what the pros are doing, but uh, rather get some ideas and, and inspiration and and then see what uh, what they can apply to their situation, which is very different in terms of time available and and uh, family and and career than the professional athletes. So so two times one hour a week of Pilates might not be the best for them. Uh, but uh, moving on, well, our final thing actually about training, what I, that I wanted to ask about is uh, how do you ba- basically follow your intensity or, or monitor your intensity? You mentioned heart rate on the run. Uh, what, how do you use RPE, power, heart rate, and pace in, in the different disciplines? Yeah, so in the swim, it's basically just RPE and the pace clock. Um, I can't say I've ever actually worn a specific swim watch. And Perhaps that is something that I would look into if I was swimming solo a lot more. Uh, but in the squat environment, I suppose there's there's really no hiding from the pace clock. Um, uh, on the bike, it's just the power meter, the heart rate and perceived effort. And I think it, it can be easy with a power meter to fall into the trap of constantly chasing power and power zones. So I, I do believe that sometimes you – it's important to um, use perceived effort as well. And then when it comes to the run, uh, yeah, I'm using heart rate and pace and perceived effort. Obviously, there is limitations to using pace in my opinion and, you know, where I live can get quite windy. So often if you're chasing a pace, you can really uh, lose sight of the actual session. So I'm a big believer in using heart rate on the run, especially where I live uh when you're going to say a head and tailwind situation yeah that makes a lot of sense for sure let's move into uh, your coaching then how how did you get into that yeah so i suppose when i was with the triathlon club uh when i was a bit younger i was very lucky to have the opportunity to 
take a couple of sessions here and there when the, the coach was away or anything like that. And that opened my eyes to taking group sessions. And it was something that I, I really, really enjoyed. And since then, I suppose I started taking group sessions with at a cycling studio on the Watt bikes. So very specific, able to use power and just with a variety of different clients there. So certainly different goals and different uh, ability. And that was great because it really taught me to cater sessions to a wide variety of people. Uh, I've also coached at schools in cycling and with some younger athletes. And then from there, I, I moved on to doing one-on-one swim sessions, which was very eye-opening in terms of using technology to assess the stroke and, and helping athletes find, you know, things that you might not necessarily see above the water, but certainly under the water. And it was really enlightening to see big gains straight off the bat. And that developed slowly into coaching one-on-one. And that's all now delivered through Training Peaks. And I'm a big believer in in monitoring all of that on a daily basis. Yeah. So uh, so what is your your philosophy or methodology when it comes to the uh, the individual triathlon coaching what what are the the pillars that you that your coaching is uh, is based upon well number one it has to be communication and and i think you agree with me on that oh yeah in the sense that it it's so important to keep clear communication channels with your athletes and you know they're not always going to be rosy and and it's not always going to just be me saying great job I mean I'm all for athletes to ask me questions I think it's important that if I can't tell you why I'm prescribing something then you have every right to question why it's on the program so I'm a big believer that I want you my athletes to ask me questions and ask me the reasoning behind things if if they don't understand it or if I haven't made it clear And I suppose further to that with the communication side of things, if we're keeping clear communication channels, what it really means is that I can then adjust the program as we need to account for any of the stress that life brings, you know. That might be one of the kids didn't sleep last night, so you got a bad night's sleep or had a very stressful week at work. And and that, if we can keep all of that, you know, communication and those lines open it just means that we can adjust the program to reflect that and it means that we can really nail consistency which is you know the fundamental key to any successful program yeah absolutely that's the that's the north star and and i could totally agree with with some athletes you you do end up when when they have busy and variable schedules spending more time almost adjusting the program than, than creating it in the first place and uh, and that's that's all right if it's uh, if if that's what's required to make sure that they can remain consistent and uh, and get the training done as uh, as best as possible with whatever context they have have, have around their their training. Oh, absolutely. So uh, if we so the the, ne- the next thing I was going to ask then was uh, was what are the the things that you have learned from? First of all, let's. I want to ask about your coaches that you've had in the past. Uh, who have been your coaches and and mentors that you've learned a lot from? Yeah, so I mean, I've been able to work with a number of great people, and I suppose number one was my first coach here in Melbourne, uh, Andy Sleeman. He no longer coaches anymore, but um, 
that was coaching at a more of a club level. And then I moved on to Cam Brown, uh, 12-time New Zealand Ironman winner, I think. And he certainly opened my eyes into what people can do at the top end of this sport in terms of sheer volume. And Cam's obviously known to be quite a high-volume trainer. I'm sure if you go and dig through his old Instagram posts, you'll see some of the massive days and massive weeks that he puts in leading up to New Zealand every year. Um, from there, I worked with Grant Giles, who uh, was the founder of Aeromax team up up uh, in northern New South Wales, and he worked with the likes of Tim Reid and Tim Burkle and Clayton Fattel. And, uh, yeah, Giles, he is certainly provided me with some insight into how to deal with the athletes in terms of communication. I think he's fantastic on that front and it's very uh, easy to get along with Gilesy and I really liked his the, where he came from in terms of training and keeping it really simple. And then from there I worked with uh, Professor Paul Larson who's been on this show maybe a couple of times I think. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Paul was certainly very insightful in terms of the scientific side of things and, and also in terms of his approach to diet is probably very different to, to some of the other coaches around there. It's a big emphasis that he places on his athletes. Uh, but I suppose the key takeaway from all of the coaches I've worked with, and, and as I mentioned before, is that the foundation to success is consistency over time. Yeah, perfect. Uh, that's a great, great breakdown. And other than that, like, are there some experiences that you've had, good and bad, in your in your own racing and training career that uh, have really influenced the way you coach now? Yeah, absolutely. I think early on in my racing career, um, I certainly fell into the trap of probably over racing every year, and you know, in that sense, it might have been. 11 or 12 half Ironmans in a year. And, and what that really means is that you you fail to get that really good block of training that you need to, to build the fitness and you're constantly uh, chasing races. So with my athletes now, I really like to set a good racing plan from the get-go and create a macro cycle around that so that we can ensure that we have good blocks of training leading into the races. And, you know, that also means using some races uh, as what we might call a B race or not an A race. Um, I suppose, as you would understand as well as an athlete, is that whenever you go onto a start line, it's very hard to not race to your full potential. So I suppose as a coach, when you're using those races as as quote-unquote B races, um, I'd like to have the athlete potentially a little bit more fatigued going into those races and also just setting expectations early on on what we are actually expecting out of the race and what our goals are and make sure that they're process-driven. Um, and, and further to that point, that's that's been a big learning for me is that having outcome-based goals can be very, very dangerous sometimes because you never know what the race is going to bring in terms of weather, in terms of other competition, and you can't control other people's races. So if you have really process-driven goals and you nail those, I think you have to walk away happy with how the day has gone. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And that's something that uh, I'm moving towards uh, quite recently, actually, in when it comes to both racing and, and training. But it's just... Uh, 
sets you up so much more for success and success breeds success. So, so it's a positive feedback loop in, in that way compared to, uh, the outcome goals. And I think that the, the more outcome goals you have, the, the more dangerous, uh, or the more risky it becomes that you, that you're never satisfied and you end up doing something stupid because you're, you're not hitting all your, your outcome goals. Is that something that you, you see a lot with athletes? Absolutely. And, and I don't even think that that is necessarily, uh, just on a racing level, I think that we also need to ensure we're not going into every session with an outcome goal because if we're chasing a, a single power number or um, a pace on the run and ignoring other factors, you know, that is where injury can take place or we can start taking risks or doing things in training that potentially we don't need to do and aren't really adding much value. Yeah, totally. The, that's the training is is a process in itself, and and uh, you're putting in a certain work amount of work, but you don't need to be too concerned with uh, the exact output that your body produces because the body is in a constant state of of change. So, so what you're you're capable of doing one day is not the same that you're capable of doing the next day, and that's that's fine. It's again, it comes back to that consistency, consistently putting in the work. But if it's uh, if it's slightly lower or higher in terms of power or pace, then that's not really relevant at all for how well you're going to do on, on race day. Oh, absolutely. And and I suppose that even speaks to say the notion of, um, you know, our functional threshold power, um, the number that, that we, that we get for that, even if we're doing the most thorough testing is really only our FTP at that time on that day. And, uh, I think we also need to appreciate that that's probably an ever changing number in reality. Yeah, I have a perfect example of this. I just uh, analyzed uh, an inside test yesterday, and that was actually a, a, a retest because the athlete, the first time, they didn't manage to quite follow the protocol correctly. So they essentially had to go back and wait a bit, recover, and do it again a week and a half later. So I have two two tests a week and a half apart, and the 20-minute power of that particular protocol was I think in the region of 15 to 17 watts different and it was lower on the second occasion, but that was, that was fine. It's in the, in the normal what variation that you, you could expect in, uh, from, from one test to another. It's, it's not a, a huge deal to the first was slightly above 300 and the second was slightly below 290. So, so totally fine, but that's just to give, give an idea of how much natural variation there actually is in what you can produce on any given day. Absolutely. So uh, if we talk about, you mentioned there, uh, planning the races and the macro cycle, uh, when you coach, you talked about your own macro cycle before, of course, but when you coach, how do you think about that uh, macro level planning? What does it look like typically? Well, I suppose it comes down to what the goals of the athlete are. And and also, you know, I, I can give advice surrounding race selection, but the reality is we have to assess why we're in this sport and the reason that any of us are in it, whether it's, you know, an age group or a professional is, is because we love it and because we love racing. So um, I, I encourage athletes to, to choose races that they enjoy doing, but at the same time, I, I always encourage athletes to pick races that allow for a good training block leading into those races. So, as I mentioned before, if, if an athlete is wanting to race every four weeks for, for 12 months, it, it does make that macro plan quite hard and it makes it 
makes it hard for us to hit a peak. So if I'm talking an Ironman athlete, I'd really like to see perhaps two Ironmans in the year as kind of, or, you know, even a half and a full as, as two peaks. And I certainly think that's, that's achievable. And now with the 70.3 worlds being in September before, uh, you know, say Kona in October, if, if we're talking about someone that was doing both of those, that, that can be quite difficult. Um, as I'm sure you appreciate with some of your athletes as well. So, yeah, look, I'd like to see a good foundation laid over, you know, the winter or or whatever the the, the season is. Um, and then, you know, go into a more of a race-specific block, hit, hit that first race and then take a good bout of recovery um, if possible. I, I really I really believe in getting good recovery now at some point through through the year i think that you need to have some downtime you know even up to say and, and, what, and what does what does that look like for you at, at, or in your coaching what what does that mid-season recovery phase look like yeah look I, i'm happy to to kind of have two weeks of very very little and i understand for some people uh i'm happy for there to be uh some low intensity swimming and going back to that discussion you had with Alan Cousins the other the other week about low intensity swimming i think that there certainly is a place for that and the recovery the, the mid year recovery is a great place to work on technique and and keep some swim form going um i like to really limit the running through there just to really get rid of some of that impact for the athlete and then in terms of riding um perhaps there's a couple of light coffee shop rides but Really, I want to bring them down quite a bit in terms of volume and and get rid of the intensity. And that's a for the body, but also for the mind. I think that it that really drives the hunger to to go again for another race. Totally. So uh, yeah, go on then from from there with the the description of the macro cycle. So yeah, after that that mid year kind of that break, if we're doing a mid year race, that's that's a key race. Um, then we're just looking at some general conditioning work for a while, dependent on the athlete. And this is kind of where we're at now in Australia with some of my athletes is, um, we're, we're going through winter. So a lot of them are now coming off that general kind of conditioning phase and we're getting into some strength work, really heavy strength focus at the moment. Um, before we head in, you know, our race season here realistically doesn't start till November. So, for a lot of my athletes, I have them doing a fair chunk of work now and, and I'm going to bring quite a few of them back down for a week or two just to let them absorb some of that work before we go into a bit more of the race-specific work over the, the eight weeks leading into the first race in November for a lot of them. Yeah, and uh, I know that this is a question that a lot will have, so I'm going to, to ask it even though it's going to be very different depending on who the athlete is and, and what their goals are. But if you can give just an example, let's say that it, this is somebody who's doing two Ironman races, one in uh, June and one in September, October. If we're talking about the Northern Hemisphere athlete, what would your the sort of the types of sessions that you do throughout the year be and how would they change if you just briefly covered that? Yeah, so I suppose um, earlier on in in kind of that general phase, we I'd you know I still like to have a long ride in there for my athletes, and that might be you know what we term as long might be three hours, but 
very little intensity. But as we move closer to the race, A, I want to build up the volume first, but then within that long ride and long run, I actually want to put in some race intensity uh, depending on the athlete, of course, how much we actually put in there and depending on their ability to recover and absorb that session. And, and I suppose that's the key thing uh, in terms of the progressive overload. Um, the question that I, I suppose we really have to ask is their ability to recover and the time that they have to recover. Uh, that's very different for a 22-year-old who's you know at university and has nothing else to do apart from that compared to say someone who's working full time has three kids uh and you know a mortgage so i suppose if you, you really need to assess the life stresses of the athlete so you know for that second athlete there i i'm going to be very careful about how we progressively overload them through that uh real that real race specific you know 8 to 12 weeks depending on the athlete I don't think that more than 12 weeks is needed to be really specific for one race. Um, I think we can kind of be doing a bit more general stuff before that 12 weeks. But in terms of the real key prep, I think 12 is is probably the maximum I like to keep for my athletes at the moment. And, and in that period, the focus will be quite a lot on, on race in, race-specific intensity. Would you have any other like strength endurance sessions or what would the other key sessions be if you have any anything else in that period for sure i think i think that it's important to to stress a variety of energy systems through that period i think that i want to make my athletes as well-rounded as possible and i think that the trap a lot of athletes fall into is is chasing one specific um performance parameter especially if they're doing testing um you know that might be the FTP or, you know, if we're doing insight testing, it might be VLA max that they get very focused on, on chasing one key thing. Um, but, you know, the reality of racing is that we need to be adaptable and we need to be able to utilize all those energy systems. So I suppose if, if we look back to, if we look at an athlete like Cam Worth on the bike, we're seeing now that, you know, he has an ability to, to um, do things on the bike that potentially other athletes don't. And I think that that comes down to the fact that he's throughout his career probably done a lot of different types of training. And I think, you know, speaking to a friend actually today, we were talking about this bump that you get when you start with a new coach. And, and I think that that's merely just having a different stimulus. So I think if we can maintain a variety of stimulus, that's only a good thing for the athlete physically but i also think mentally it's it's great to keep the athlete engaged in the process yeah that's a, that's a really good point and i think i don't know if you've heard it yet because it's uh, by the time of this recording just a couple of days old but uh, the interview i did with shannon grady that uh, gives a lot of explanations as for why the different uh, stimuli stressing different energy systems is so important for for overall performance and, and not getting too hung up on on one energy system yeah no so i actually that actually listened to that about uh seven hours ago so i i found that really insightful that podcast um certainly some some things that i suppose we know uh, or not know but kind of know as our n equals one but to hear it kind of quantified by her was was certainly very interesting yeah 
And and in the general preparation phase, then would you have the same sort of uh, of philosophy of stressing different energy systems, and would you still keep quite a bit of intensity in there? And or what what does that general preparation phase look like? Yeah, I, I do like to stress different energy systems, but I suppose that um, during that general phase, there's actually different ways to do that. So whilst in the the key specific phase, we might be doing that through you know, really targeted sessions through the week. During the general phase, that might be, you know, engaging in something like a bunch ride where there's a high amount of variability, but it's not something that we're necessarily planning. Or it might be going out on a long ride with your mates and, uh, you know, looking, searching for some hills where we're just getting the intensity through the hills and not really having to think about it. So it's about create, for me, it's about creating that variety of stimulus, but doing it in a way where it doesn't feel extremely structured for the athlete. Um, And then, you know, through the week, there's obviously going to be sessions in there where I'm really making sure that they're keeping the intensity low. And that's, that's probably one of the hardest things to do as a coach is, is kind of get your athletes to really understand the importance of that low intensity work and that it actually does provide you know, really good bang for buck. Yeah, yeah, and even when you're time crunched, because otherwise you're not stressing that that energy system, so you're losing that. Uh, I think what you mentioned there with the, the structured sessions and not having too much of them, uh, because if you have them in the general and the specific preparation, it, it gets so easy to burn out on on like super uh, specific structured sessions. So that's a really good point there about using bunch rides and and things of that nature to to get the st- a stimulus that you're after, but still not burn out on them. I I'm a bit obsessed with the way that the the Kenyan and Ethiopian runners, but in particular the Kenyan runners, because it's more documented how they train and the amount of that type of training that they do, like just go out for big group runs and it's starting at six minutes per kilometer pace or something crazy slow like that and then they build up over 30 kilometers and end up running sub three minute kilometers on dirt roads at altitude but it's all based on how the group is feeling and they end up dropping most of the people of course but but just the the fact that they don't have a specific structure but they're still the best in the world uh, for a large part of the season they, they they do things like that and not necessarily anything i'm going to go and do 16 by 400 on the track and i'm going to hit this amount this specific time it's it's something that is quite uh, quite useful to include definitely as you say during parts of the season to to not burn out on too much structure yeah and i think as a coach then the you know the onus falls on you then to to be monitoring those sessions on a daily basis and, and ensure that if the athlete does go out for a bunch ride or or does go out for a run with their friends and and the intensity ends up being quite high that we're kind of adjusting the rest of the sessions for the week to account for that yeah yeah for sure what are some we've talked about mentioned some of them but if you can just list and summarize a few some common mistakes you think that uh, triathletes and uh, age group triathletes in particular make in whether it's training or or racing so i mean a, and, and this is a big one for me, is that we live in a society where um, kind of a lack of sleep is almost worn as a, as a badge of honour. And I really want to change that perception with my athletes. I think that sleep is, is invaluable and, and it's where a lot of 
the adapta- adaptation takes place. So if you're neglecting sleep, um, I think eventually that's going to catch up with you. And then, you know, secondary to that, I think that, um, you know, energy deficiency is, is a big problem in our sport at, at all levels. I think that people really underestimate um, kind of what they actually require on a day-to-day basis and, you know, that that uh, you can kind of get away with an energy deficiency for a while and, and perhaps that starts like looking on the scales like a great thing, but eventually it, it will catch up with you. So I really am trying to stress with my athletes at the moment the importance of having good energy availability for, for their sessions. Yeah, that, those are really great points. And, and actually, like I can tell a personal anecdote here. We met, talked about this before the interview a little bit, but uh, I've had a, a period now where uh, I've been feeling really bad in training the last last few days. So I just took a step back, training no more than 30 to 45 minutes per day and just eating a lot and uh, sleeping as much as my body needs, so no alarm. And I actually ended up being... 20 minutes late to to our interview because I I overslept. I thought that I would, because I always wake up at 5 or 6 a.m. and now I woke up at 7 a.m. for some reason. But my body was definitely telling me that that I needed either more more recovery or more energy. So trying to sort that out by not waking up uh, and letting my body sleep as long as possible and and also eating more than I usually do, even though I'm training almost nothing. So so yeah, uh, definitely agree with with those things. But And it can be quite difficult to i guess take that leap and uh, do those changes when you feel that uh, yeah right now i'm not really i'm under recovered i'm not not getting the benefit that i should from the training but uh, it's something that you have to just be courageous about and and do if you feel that that may be something that's affecting you and and it's always better to be overly conservative and then get more consistent in the long run than to take a chance and be a bit aggressive and think that you might get away with it and then not get away with it. So yeah, those are my two cents. Yeah. And look, I'm, I'm, as I've kind of said before uh, to you before the interview is, I mean, I'm yet to see or meet an athlete who I've felt is, you know, drastically under training given, you know, the other stresses in their life. Yeah, for sure. And then uh, that leads into another question that uh, about training and racing. Some low-hanging fruit that you think is available to uh, to many athletes that that the people listening can go out and implement and and see some some tangible results from if they were to to do that. Do you have any ideas? Oh, absolutely on this front. And I think if if we work through the the three sports within triathlon, I think in the swim. It comes down to a really good fitting wetsuit uh, can make a massive difference. If your wetsuit doesn't fit properly, uh, you know, I've met a number of athletes who feel as though swimming in a wetsuit is just so much harder. But as soon as you get them in a wetsuit that fits properly and fits them properly, all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're loving swimming in it. So that's A in the swim. Um, if we move to the bike, a clean drivetrain is just a super easy thing to do. Um, you know, the, the amount of athletes I see out there with a ceramic speed, you know, jockey wheel, but a super dirty drivetrain is is a little bit worrying, to be honest. So get your drivetrain clean. Um, good tyres on the bike uh, is an easy fix. I personally go for a Schwalbe 1. I've found that to be a really good 
kind of balance between puncture protection and speed. But, you know, there's a number of options out there. And if you go on Google, I know that there's a number of websites that compare tyres. So that that's a super easy one. And, you know, same goes for just these days, the, the clothing that we have available in triathlon is so fantastic in terms of aerodynamics. So pick, picking a, a suit that fits you well and isn't flapping around in the wind is is kind of an easy saving. Um, and then I guess when it comes to the run, I, I suppose, and this relates to the bike and swim as well, is just having a tried and true nutrition strategy that you know works. Um, you know, you don't want to get out there on race day and not know what you're doing because that is really a recipe for disaster. So just practicing your nutrition through through your training is so important. And once you find something that works, keep it super simple and, and stick with it and also have a backup plan just in case that, that goes wrong or you drop a bottle or something like that. You need to know what you can rely on out on course. Yeah, and, and log that those nutrition uh, plans that you try out in training because it's so easy to go out and try something and then you forget to to write what you actually did and then you pretty quickly forget what, what it was that you did that worked. So so make sure that you log that in your training peaks or wherever you, you write your, your workout comments. Yeah. Finally, final question. Uh, what do you think are the greatest benefits of, uh, of having a coach, uh, both for yourself personally and uh, for... Uh, for the efforts that you coach what have they told you yeah so i think a coach ultimately just provides a very objective view surrounding your training i know for me personally when i was a bit of a younger athlete as well um it's easy to fall into the trap of constantly thinking you need to test your fitness and constantly going out and doing sessions that are probably harder than they need to be so as a coach, I'm a big believer now in, in setting zones for, for a session, especially when it comes to power on the bike. I, I don't want an athlete necessarily chasing a single number. I like to give a range for the athlete to work towards. And, and then it, you know, some of the onus falls on them to decide how they're feeling that day. Um, that's probably the, the biggest takeaway for me, I think, is in terms of having a coach is that objectivity because as soon as you start coaching yourself, yes, I, I think you can be influenced by, you know, a number of different things, you know, that you read in magazines or you see another athlete doing and you start, you know, bringing all these different philosophies in and all of a sudden you, you forget what you're actually chasing and you forget what the ultimate goal is. Yeah, I call it creating a, a Frankenstein training uh, training methodology when you when you bring in too much uh, too much from different sources and and not having a cohesive strategy. Yeah, and I think you know as a coach, most more often than not, you're not keeping the athlete accountable for actually doing the sessions. You're keeping the athlete accountable for not doing too much. And I think for a lot of people, it's actually about holding them back a little bit. For sure, for sure. So uh, that's uh, about a wrap for for the, this discussion, except for the rapid fire questions. So uh, let's move into them. And the first one is: What's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to triathlon? So I loved the book Endure. Um, if you haven't read it, get it. Go out and get it. Um, but in saying that, I'm actually currently reading 
the book of the ex-teen Sky Doctor, which uh, I thought would be an interesting read uh, surrounding some of the controversies, but there's actually some some very valuable information in there surrounding kind of some of the things that they did at Sky that um, potentially you wouldn't think of, you know, just little things, you know, like hand sanitizer at the Tour de France to keep their athletes healthy and things like that that are those marginal gains that they speak of, I suppose. And, and your, that book is written by Alex Hutchinson and uh, he's a past guest of the show, so we'll link to that as well in the show notes. Uh, next question is, what's your favorite piece of gear or equipment? I absolutely love the Smart Trainer. Uh, I currently... I'm using the Elite Drivo, I believe it's called, but also use the Tax Neo before that. Uh, I just think for athletes that live in cold environments or environments that aren't necessarily safe um, or just they don't have the opportunity to get clear stretches of road, it's a great tool in terms of nailing specificity and also making sure that you, you know, you're really time efficient. And uh, what do you wish you had known or done differently at some point in your career, whether it be your own athletic career or your coaching career? Yeah, I've been very lucky to be surrounded by some really top athletes here in Melbourne uh, where I live, namely Luke Bell and Annabelle Luxford. And I wish I knew how valuable that was when I was a bit younger. And, and I've been so lucky to have some advice from them um and perhaps when i was a bit younger i didn't listen as much as i should have and and now i appreciate uh how valuable that advice is and that they've been through so much so their advice is is certainly second to none oh that that's that's a great one so finally as uh i think i mentioned in the intro which i haven't recorded yet obviously but uh i will uh you are uh officially a scientific triathlon coach now and taking on athletes so We'll link in the show notes to uh, your the page, your bio is on the coaching page. So hopefully people can go and read more. And the way it works, if people are interested in, in coaching, is that you can set up uh, a call, just a chat with, with Lucky to to talk with him and see if it might be a good fit from, from both both sides. It's uh, It has to be a, a two-way conversation where you're both vetting each other to see if you're going to have a good long-term, long-term relationship as a coach and an athlete and and then decide from there. No commitments or obligations, what uh, whatsoever. It's uh, it's completely uh, completely with no strings attached. And uh, yeah, everything is on the coaching page on scientifictravel.com. Is there anything you want to to add to to that uh, to people to address people that might be interested in your coaching, Lucky? Yeah. Look, just that I'm open to athletes of of all abilities, and I'm passionate about helping people reach their goals, whatever, whatever they may be. So yeah, as you mentioned, I'm happy to have a call with, with anyone and happy to discuss what you think your goals are and how I think that I could help you achieve those. Brilliant. So uh, everybody, you can go to the show notes or directly to the coaching page on scientifictriathlon.com to learn more. And uh, thank you, Larky, so much for uh, being on the podcast and uh, sharing your expertise and uh, also Welcome again as a coach to Scientific Triathlon. Thank you. Looking forward to it. I really hope that you enjoyed that interview as much as I enjoy talking to Lucky. 
And uh, if you have been looking for a coach, perhaps this was an opportunity to get to know somebody that is uh, guaranteed to be quality. As, as mentioned, if you are in that position, we can set up a call so you can learn more and see if it's a good fit or not. No obligations whatsoever. You can find Lockie's email in the episode description and the show notes, and you can read his bio and more about his coaching on the coaching page on scientifictriathlon.com. This is a good episode actually to make a, a general note for both coaches and athletes listening about the the process, I guess, of becoming a scientific triathlon coach, because I am a big believer in transparency. Uh, so, uh, so far, there hasn't really been a process. And uh, actually, there still isn't a specific process. Uh, so there is, however, a long coaching manifesto on my Google Drive that goes into detail of what I want scientific triathlon to be like as a coaching business and what any coaching client should be guaranteed to get when they uh, sign up to work with a scientific triathlon coach. And the main core values that I list at the very top of the document are individualization. So we work with individual athletes and we treat them as individuals. Communication, as Larson mentioned, that is so, so important. Nothing more important, really. And uh, commitment and drive. So uh, it's not enough to individualize and communicate. You really need to be committed to making the athlete successful. So really be motivated to help the athlete as a coach and have that drive, that hunger, that the athlete's success is your success as a coach as well. And then next we have subject matter expertise. So uh, of course that is super important and that's much of what this podcast is about is about subject matter expertise, but I still put it as fourth uh, on the list and uh, it is clearly uh, behind. It's not like in no particular order. It's actually in the order that I consider the importance of, of these attributes or these core values. So it is hugely important, but uh, individualization and communication and like are even more important, although subject matter expertise is a must-have, of course. These are all must-haves. But it's not enough to have subject matter expertise, but also a constant continuing learning is part of that fourth point as well. And the fifth point or fifth core value is uh, educating and empowering the athlete. So telling the why, that's something that uh, Lockie also mentioned there, that uh, the athlete should be able to ask, why am I doing this? And and he should be able to give an answer. That's true for, for all of us. Uh, we should be able to tell the athlete why they're doing what they're doing. So as you can see here, we're not trying to pigeonhole any particular kind of training methodology because I don't think that that's the most effective way to get the most out of an athlete. My belief is that if a coach has all of those core values that I listed, individualization, communication, commitment and drive, subject matter expertise and constant continuing learning, and they are educating and empowering the athlete, then they will find what works for each athlete individually and what is the best for that athlete. And uh, it is something that I think is important to address because quite often we get emails where it's clear that the athlete assumes that all the coaching that we do has to be very, very numbers driven, very robotic and formulaic. But that's, that's not true. That's not, that's a small, small part subset of subject matter expertise, but there's so much more to it. And I'm personally completely open to coaching entirely with rating or perceived exertion, no numbers other than that if I think that's what a particular athlete needs. And all of us coaches have that ability to choose to do that if we think that's what would work best in that case. So uh, yeah, it's just about 
choosing the coaching that will work best for each individual athlete. So, so our coaching shouldn't be labeled as anything. And I guess scientific triathlon is not perhaps the most thought through brand name, as I mentioned, I think a couple of times before, uh, because it, it sure is, but that's not the whole story. Uh, so I guess if you want to label the coaching, it would be something like individualized, committed and communication driven coaching. So it, it doesn't tell you anything about training intensity distributions or prioritization models or anything like that. Uh, but uh, the idea is that it should guarantee high quality coaching. Anyhow, so over the years that this podcast has been going, I've been getting a lot of emails from coaches that are interested in, in joining and, and coaching for scientific triathlon. And uh, a lot of these applications have been really, really good. But since I haven't really been advertising an open position and haven't had any process in place for selecting a coach or onboarding a coach or anything like that, I've mostly been forced to say that I'll get back to you when I officially have an open position. But I've had two applicants that ticked all the boxes so thoroughly that it's been just a no-brainer to quote-unquote grab them when they're available. And uh, that would be James Teagle and, uh, and Lucky that you heard here. And an example of a testament to, to that, I guess, is that I myself as an athlete, I'm working with James now. James is uh, functioning as a, a coaching consultant to me uh, in my own athletic career, I guess, over the last couple of months because I am self-coached, but I've been spread pretty thin and not been able to really coach myself effectively. So uh, I've been relying on, on hiring James's help with, to, to get me through the summer towards the, the goal races that I have in in September. So, uh, and it's just because I, I know that, uh, he's such a great coach and, uh, because I know we've been, I've been doing the vetting already. So, uh, so for athletes listening that are interested in coaching, I guess what I'm saying is that we're trying to build a team here where you should be guaranteed a great service. It should not be any sort of risk to get, get coached by, by any scientific, by a scientific triathlon coach. And, uh, and it's my strong belief that that's 100% the case now. And the challenge for us will be to make sure that we, we always keep it that way. And the way that we, we will, will do that is by constantly trying to continue to improve and learn and, and stay humble. So, so that's, I guess, the, the trajectory that we're, uh, we're facing. And for coaches, at some point, there will probably uh, be an open position announced, depending on how quickly Lockie gets to his full capacity with athletes. But if you want to make sure that uh, you don't miss that announcement and you do think that you tick all the boxes I mentioned, uh, then feel free to get in touch. I'll save your details for when there is an open position. If you know that you don't tick all the boxes, then there's no point applying because they are all must-have. And that's not to say that all coaches in the world have to have the same core values as, as we have, but it's just uh, the, the values that we have here at Scientific Triathlon and we want to make sure that our athletes get to experience and for some athletes those might not be the right values they might be looking for something different but uh, for us that's what we're looking for and uh, the athletes that we want to coach are those athletes that will benefit the most from from that kind of, uh, of value-based coaching. So I guess that wraps it up. Big thanks to our sponsors uh, Roka that you can find on roka.com and you can get 20% off your entire order with the promo code TTS all caps and thank you to Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com check out last week's episode episode 191 with Andy Blow and use the limited time 
coupon code that triathlon show two zero to get twenty percent off your entire order, or the promo code that triathlon show all in word all caps to get your first box or tube of electrolyte for free. Thank you as always for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.